Hello and welcome back to Mise on Smash, the weekly podcast where we break the story for the Super Smash Brothers cinematic universe with unique writers and comedians, one game at a time. I'm your co-host, Simon Lewis Ong. And I'm your other co-host, Pete Simmons-Hayes. And we're jumping right back into things this week with part two of Earthbound. If you have not listened to episode 10 yet, we can't recommend enough that you go and listen to that. Uh, Not much in this episode is going to make sense without having listened to that one, as this is the continuation and conclusion of that story. Uh, So definitely go and give that episode a listen. It's awesome. And this one's going to be just as good if if you're all caught up. We can't wait for you to see how Earthbound finishes up. Episode 6, City Kids. Ness, Paula, and Jeff are on the side of a desert road that is backed up with Fender Defender traffic. This is Dusty Dunes Desert, and it's absolutely sweltering. The trio have hitchhiked to get this far, but now with traffic at a standstill, they sit on the side of the road and wait for things to get moving. The man that they are hitchhiking with waits a little ways over. Jeff is about to have a heat stroke, and Ness realizes that they need to get him some water. There's a convenience store just a few yards back, but the only problem is they don't have any money. Despite what you might think in the game, fighting monsters does not provide a steady income. Paula, thinking on her feet, grabs a piece of cardboard that's been littered on the side of the road and writes on it, for sale. At first, Ness is like, what are you doing? But Paula responds, business. And then Ness is like, we don't have anything to sell. This is never gonna... Ness is interrupted as from out of the tunnel that goes under the mountain behind them comes running, full sprint, a fully suited man. He's out of breath, but he's booking it like lightning. He runs up to the kids and starts (laughs) painting. Am I too late? And Paula, just a smirk on her face, she says, not at all. We were just looking for investors. Paula takes off the lavish necklace she wears around her neck and dangles it in front of the man. Wanna buy in? He looks mm, at it. I don't know. And then Paula looks around for something else to sweeten the deal. She goes, How about if I throw in this rock? Mm, but that's just an ordinary rock. Paula <laughs> scoffs. She says, Just an ordinary rock. Yeah, sure, buddy. Now the businessman seems intrigued. Hmm, best I can do is $40. Sold. Thanks, kid. You're a real dynamo. And the businessman immediately starts booking it back in the other direction from which he came. And Ness, still just a kid, says, I will never understand the ways of adult commerce. Now with some money, they get Jeff some water, and he's starting to feel better, but... They're all hungry at this point. Ness searches through his backpack looking for something to eat, but he doesn't have anything that's instantly ready, only things that require cooking. Ness's mom has cooked for him his whole life, and Jeff has always eaten dining hall food. Paula, taking the reins, grabs the food and puts her frying pan to the ground where it immediately starts heating up, and it starts cooking the food. The thesis statement here is, what would these boys do without Paula? As they eat the food Paula's prepared, she tries to broach the subject of Ness's vision with him, the one he had back in Saturn Valley. Do you want to talk more about it? Ness shrugs. I just don't know what it means. It means Gygus has attempted to invade Earth before, but why me? Why now? 
What do I have to do with Ninten and stuff that happened 40 years ago? Apollo replies, I don't know, Ness, but more knowledge is never a bad thing. We'll figure it out. Together. We cut to Foreside. This is the big city at the center of the desert. They, they walked further into the desert and they made it to Foresight. It's the big city. Even though it's modeled off of Vegas location-wise, it has a Manhattan feel due to its overwhelming size and the fact that no one seems to have any time for you. As the trio walks through the streets, they encounter a lot of talk about the horrors of capitalism, what it's like living under the thumb of big business and rampant bureaucracy. There's just a lot of adult talk, especially when it comes to asking for directions and whatnot. Ness and Jeff are super out of their depth when it comes to this stuff, but Paula is really good at talking to adults and gets them where they need to go. After walking around for a little bit, they take a break at the mall super center where they get some frozen yogurt. Even though they're at the big city, they feel comfortable going to a mall. That's that's what these kids all know. They know malls. They don't know city stores. Ness takes a moment to admire Paula's ability to talk to adults. And which Paula just attributes to she grew up around a lot of grown-ups, slightly shrugging off the question. Meanwhile, Jeff has his face glued to the glass, looking at the flavors of Froyo. I'll have vanilla. We don't have vanilla. Fine, then chocolate? We don't have chocolate. You don't have chocolate? But what flavors do you have? Trout. Trout? Don't you have anything besides that? Nope. All they have is trout flavored? When Jeff comes back disappointed, Paula gets up. They're messing with you, Jeff. I'm sure they have vanilla. Let me go get you some. Paula leaves to go to the counter, but after she's gone, the lights go out. There's sort of a squishy tentacly sound that emits just as the lights go out. Ness pulls a flashlight from his backpack and turns it on. To his surprise, none of the other people who were in the mall before the lights went out are there anymore. Ness and Jeff are the only people in the mall. What's more is that Paula is nowhere to be found. Just then, a voice comes over the intercom. Calling Ness to the manager's office. Calling Ness to the manager's office. Do you think they mean me? And then suddenly they hear a smash! of a store window behind them. But when they turn to see who had done it, there's no one there to blame. Only the items from the store, who seem to be suspiciously closer to the boys. Before the two can put it together, there are more smashes as store windows all around them shatter one by one. And then evil sentient items of American commerce walk and hover out of the respective stores toward the boys. Dangerous items such as scalpel-esque CD players and blazing hot cups of coffee fling themselves at Ness and Jeff. Ness and Jeff fight their way through the mall, but it's tough. It's a big mall, and there's a lot of items for sale. Ness and Jeff then make their way through the dark mall and eventually arrive at the manager's office where they are confronted by an alien creature made up of tentacles who just like sits there at the security chair just talking through the intercom having a great time. And then he slowly swivels in his chair facing them and he goes, It attacks Ness and Jeff. After a bit of struggle, the two are able to defeat the alien as Jeff fires a laser right through its head barely defeating it before the two collapse in exhaustion. Putting on brave faces, the two interrogate the alien, demanding to know where Paula is. The alien slits a toothy smile and matter-of-factly answers that your friend is being held in the Monopoly building. 
The alien laughs. It doesn't matter if you know where she is. The building is way too far from you now. The alien then flickers into nothing, leaving the boys confused. Sure, the building is downtown and they're uptown, but the Monotoli building isn't that far away, right? On their way back to the entrance, Jeff scans the shattered store windows filled with valuable, unguarded treasures that he is now free to take. Used to being closely supervised at his private boarding school, Jeff gets excited at the concept of free stuff, running into a nearby tech shop and pocketing as many gadgets as he can carry. Following Jeff's example, Ness explores the other side of the mall, eventually stopping at a toy shop. He's about to enter, but stops when the twinkle of a precious gem in the window of the store adjacent to the toy shop catches his eye. He thinks back to the fancy-looking charm he saw around Paula's neck, the one she had to sell to that businessman just to get Jeff some water. And we cut to Ness and Jeff meeting back at the entrance of the mall. Jeff's arms are filled with fireworks and other just explosive goodies, and he excitedly asks Ness what he made off with. Ness shows Jeff a yo-yo he stole, which is a satisfying enough answer for Jeff. But when we focus back on Ness, we see him shove a diamond necklace deeper into his pocket. And then Ness and Jeff exit the mall. And that's when they discover that they're not in foresight anymore. No, they're not even in the same dimension as before, they have somehow been transported to the alternate dimension of Foreside, known as Moonside. Moonside is a place not unlike Foreside, except it is plunged in a perpetual state of night and is filled with flashing neon lights. Moonside is an absurdist reality. Yes, it is still occupied by some regular people, but it's also the home of talking fire hydrants, floating anthropomorphic clocks, and sentient pieces of art. It's a very strange place, like a bad nightmare. Ness and Jeff traverse this hellscape, but find that not even that is done easily. The city's like a maze, and the streets are constantly moving and bending in on themselves. As Ness and Jeff try to find their way, they instead find that things are becoming increasingly hostile towards them. They're approaching the center of the city, and everything becomes slowly and slowly more violent. After walking for a while, Ness... Ness stops, and he notices that Jeff is also stopped. He's no longer with him. Jeff is standing in a place about 100 feet back from him. He's shaking in a manner that makes it unclear whether it is out of a defiant anger or an ashamed fear. Ness asks, What's wrong? Jeff hunches over and yells, I don't know what I'm doing! Ness tries to reassure him and say that he doesn't know what he's doing either, but it doesn't seem to help because, in Jeff's opinion, that even if Ness doesn't know the things he does, there's still things he does. Jeff tells him, I fix bottle rockets, Ness. I fix bottle rockets. Now it's Ness's turn to freak out, going back to all the stuff he was saying in the beginning about not knowing why he should be the one to do this. He spouts all the anxieties he seems to have. Jeff then joins Ness's pity party and goes off on a tangent that runs parallel to Ness's. They both don't seem to be listening to each other. But that all changes when they both utter the same line, I wish, I wish my, my dad, dad taught me to, me to do, do that. that. Ness and Jeff stop and finally take each other in. At this point, they were pretty much just intergalactic co-workers, but now 
they're realizing that they're the same underdeveloped, scared little boy. Before they can dissect this and reach a better understanding, they are ambushed by an angry mob of monsters. After angry mobs chase them to the center of the city, Ness and Jeff are face-to-face with a giant Manny Manny statue. The same one that's seemingly been following Ness all around on his journey. It's in this moment that Ness realizes that the Manny Manny statue is what's driving these people insane and that it's the source of all the evil that's taken root on Earth. Ness unleashes a full-out attack on the Manny Manny statue. We've never seen him like this before. Ness is able to tap into his PSI abilities in a way that he hasn't up until now. But the evil Manny Manny is not going to go down so easily. Anything that Ness unleashes upon it, it is able to return twofold. As the evil Manny Manny attacks, it grows larger and larger until it towers over all the other buildings in the city. It's huge. Jeff, fresh off the pep talk that Ness has given him, launches some rockets at the Manny Manny, distracting it. This buys Ness just enough time. Ness reaches into his inner aura, and as he does, flashes to Ninten and Anna dancing in the cave from his vision. Drawing upon this memory, Ness is able to hurl a massively powerful PK love at the Manny Manny statue, shattering it into a million pieces. Ness and Jeff wake up in an abandoned lot back in Forside. The miniature Manny Manny statue lies in pieces just a little ways off. Jeff clutches his body. Was that a dream? Ness eyes the statue. I don't think so. Ness notices that a small metallic pyramid also sits just a ways off. This is Magnet Hill, the fourth sanctuary location. Ness stands up. Uh, Ness? Jeff says. Ness reaches out and touches the magnet. Ness flashes to see himself as a baby, sipping on a baby bottle. We partially see his parents dancing in the background. And we hear the fourth melody. Now back in Foreside and ready to get Paula back, Ness and Jeff rush to the Monotoli building, the tallest tower in the city that happens to stand right where the statue did in Moonside. Decor-wise, think it's Trump Tower. Think Trump Tower. The two rush in but are unable to get past the lady at the front desk. The little rascals, two kids in a jacket thing isn't going to work here. She says, you must have a key card to use the elevator. Frustrated, Ness and Jeff are unsure of what to do when they notice a sign on the lobby theater. The Runaway Five. The Runaway Five now have a hotel show here at the theater. They're, they have, they must have key cards. So Ness and Jeff take their seats in the classy, if not a little gauche, auditorium. Like, where you going to, baby? Don't you see my dance moves? 
They watched the Runaway Five perform, and boy, oh boy, what a difference the change in venue makes. With higher production value, it's clear the band is actually really, really good. They kill it. And after the show, Ness and Jeff approached them, and the lead singer is like, Hey, it's our boy! Shit, you wouldn't believe what happened to us after you guys left. And Ness is like, You got famous! Motioning to a giant poster of them, and they're like, Yeah, we're pretty big stars now. And then the drummer for the band elbows the lead singer. He's like, hey, you're going to ask him or what? And he's like, I'm getting to it, Melvin. And, you know, he like kind of <laughs> gels up his hair. He faces Ness and he's like, hey, uh, so uh, listen, we're friends, right? And uh, friends help each other out. You wouldn't happen to have another 10,000 bucks on you, would you? And you wouldn't theoretically have the math to double that and have a uh, $100,000? And Ness replies, Um, that's wrong, and no, we don't. It happened again, didn't it? It happened again. <laughs> he said shamefully. We sold our contract to the man who owns this building, and now we have to perform here for life. Jeff excitedly is like, Wait, 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 wait. You guys got bought out by Monotoli? What if I told you we were on our way to fight him right now? Well, we could definitely get you upstairs, but, well, I don't know. He kind of owns our lives and stuff. And then Ness takes a moment realizing what he has to do. He has an idea, but he doesn't want to do it. And he says, Well, I kind of meant to give this to someone, but... Ness pulls out the diamond necklace. A big smile flashes across the lead singer of the Runaway Five's face. Yeah, that looks like $100,000 to me. Therein. Ness, Jeff, and the band head upstairs. They're confident as hell and storm into Monotoli's office. All right, boys, break some shit. They're just like fucking up the place. Ness exclaims, Where's Paula? As they enter, the chair behind Monotoli's desk swirls around to reveal not Monotoli, but Pokey sitting there. I have to say, Ness, I was impressed when you beat my Manny Manny statue. When Liar showed it to me underneath his house, I knew I just had to have it for myself. Adults keep trying to steal it from me. They own it police, Mr. Carpenter, but it and I always had a way of winding back up together until you destroyed it, that is. Ness tries to reason with Pokey. Pokey, you're in over your head here. You're dealing with things you don't fully understand. Oh, don't I? Give him hell. With Pokey's yell, Mr. Monotoli rushes into the room from behind Ness, Jeff, and the band. He has the same look in his eyes that those previously corrupted by Gygus have had. He rushes toward them. The band steps in front of the boys. We'll handle this. The band takes turns bashing Monotoli with their instruments or with their music. Fun stuff like shoving Monotoli in a tuba and blowing really hard or hitting him upside the head with the guitar. After the beating, the effect of the hypnosis wears off on Monotoli and he passes out. Pokey seems to realize that the jig is up and he flees to the roof of the building. Ness follows after him, but by the time he gets to the roof, Pokey is taking off in one of Monotoli's helicopters. We'll be seeing each other, Ness. Don't you worry. Ness returns to the office where he grabs Monotoli, who is just regaining consciousness, by the collar. Where is Paula? Relax, relax, boy. She's she's all right. She's in the conference room. Nobody hurt her. Ness throws the necklace on Monotoli. That's for the contract. Hell 
Hell yeah! The man members high-fived each other. Ness and Jeff head next door to the conference room where they reunite with and rescue Paula. Ness immediately gives Paula a big hug. We finish with Pokey high up in the clouds in a helicopter. He's clearly annoying the pilot, blabbing in his ear, but that blabbing is soon cut off by the static of the radio. Pilot tries to fiddle with the switches, but the speaker seems out of control for some reason. Out of the speaker, we then hear an otherworldly voice saying, Pilot is confused what the voice means by that, but Pokey understands, bearing a smile that reflects not so much his spoiled nature as it's done prior, but something much darker and more sinister. The clouds around the helicopter darken, developing deep streaks of red that seem to breathe. We cut back inside the helicopter, and the pilot is on the ground, motionless. Pokey stands over him, staring at the dark clouds, sneakering to himself, excited for what comes next. End of episode. Episode 7, Winters and Summers. Ness, Paula, and Jeff say goodbye to the Runaway Five at the entrance to the Monotoli building. Each member of the Runaway Five does their own personal goodbye to our heroes. Keep your nose clean, kid. Smell sooner. Tip your waitresses. Be nice to your mother. But when they get to the sixth and final member's goodbye, they're nowhere to be found. Hey, where'd Ducky get off to? The band is confused, but play it off, jokingly celebrating that they finally are the Runaway Five. Boy, I guess we're finally the Runaway Five, huh? Ness, Paula, and Jeff then head to Foreside Airport, where they're trying to buy tickets to Chomo, a faraway country that the vision given to Ness by the last sanctuary location told him housed the next sanctuary location. The man at the airport desk will not let them buy tickets because they don't have passports. The trio needs to figure out a way to get out of the country without passports. Ness has an idea and calls up Apple Kid, thinking that maybe he could build them something. But his call isn't answered by Apple Kid, it's answered by Orange Kid. Ness figures he mixed up the numbers, but Orange Kid patronizingly corrects him, stating that Apple Kid has gone missing. But no one's looking for him. It's not like he's important or anything. Ness hangs up, concerned and hopeless about what they should do. Reluctantly, Jeff says he has an idea. Cut to the trio on a train, speeding through a snowy landscape. They're on the way to Winters, where Jeff has promised Ness and Paula his dad can build them a ship that can get them where they need to go. Ness pulls Jeff aside on the train and asks him if he's sure about going to see his dad. He knows that they have a strained relationship, and Ness is aware that if he was in Jeff's shoes, he wouldn't be eager about it. Jeff assures him that it's alright and that this is what they need to do to go forward. They get to Andonuts' lab. Before they go in, Jeff gives his friends a warning about how his dad can be a little emotionally distant and cold. However, to their surprise, when they enter, nobody is there. That is, except for the monkey that had helped Jeff earlier. When Jeff came here the first time, he left the monkey behind with his father to help assist him. The monkey is excited to be reunited with Jeff and excitedly starts ooking at him. (laughs) 
<laughs> Jeff seems to understand what the monkey is telling him. You can talk to monkeys, Ness asks. Just this one. The monkey tells Jeff that Andonuts was abducted in the middle of the night and that he's been left here alone. They ask the monkey where Andonuts was taken, and the monkey responds with a single... What did he say? Paula asks. Jeff turns to look at her. Stonehenge. The trio trudge through the snowy fields of winters. They're on their way to Stonehenge. The Stonehenge of this universe is not like the one of our universe. It's far more secluded and still holds a mystical allure. Few have seen it, but Jeff knows it's in the area, as it was one of his father's fields of study and why he set up his lab so close to it to begin with. When they arrive, Ness and Paula can sense an extraordinary amount of psychic energy pulsating from the site. Jeff takes the reins at this point, fed up with waiting, and starts setting up some wires and circuits around the site. I learned this trick from my dad. Just like that, Jeff sets off a massive explosion. What are you doing? This is an ancient site, Ness yells at him. But when the dust clears, the center of Stonehenge has disappeared to reveal a massive staircase below. The three of them look down in awe. If there's one good thing I got from my father, it's a healthy love of explosives. The trio head down the staircase into what is very clearly an elaborately designed base of some kind. It's ancient. It has to have been here for thousands of years. Ness remarks. However, as they go deeper and deeper, the base gets more and more technologically impressive and futuristic looking. They arrive at the bottom and enter a massive chamber filled with big green tubes of liquid. The tubes are filled with people. People they know. Jeff is shocked to see not just his father, but also Tony. Ness and Paula also spot people they recognize, including Everdread, the Photoman, Mr. Saturns, Brick Road, and the sixth member of the Runaway Five. The three try to bash the pods open, but it proves to be ineffective. Ness is starting to freak out a little. Now Gygus is spreading to people they know. It's closing in on him. In a panic, Ness closes his eyes and bum-rushes the pods. But when he opens his eyes, he isn't even touching the pod. He's still feet away. Instead, he ran into some kind of invisible wall. What did he run into? A light shimmers in front of him, slowly materializing into a giant silver wall. Ness looks up to see a star man looking down on him. He's stuck in the same exact frozen position he was in when he saw one back in Onet. While he looks on in horror, Paula springs into action, hitting the Starman with PSI. But it seems to have no effect. The Starman has some kind of shield made out of psychic energy. Ness and Paula struggle to put a scratch on him. Jeff realizes that physical attacks are the only hope against this alien. He scans for things he can use, finally stopping on what looks like the abandoned trumpet of the captured Runaway 5 member. As Jeff and Paula run around, Jeff tinkers with the instrument. He gets up and whispers to his unconscious dad. Watch this. Jeff staggers behind the star man, shaking, eventually working up the courage to say, Hey, star man, you know that sound you've been looking for? Well, listen to this. He blows into the trumpet and rockets burst out with the speed of sound toward the star man. The Starman tries to use its shield, thinking that it's a PSI attack, but it's no use. The rockets explode on impact, destroying the Starman, decimating it into nothing. 
With the Starman gone, the pods behind Jeff open up on their own, and now free citizens of Eagle Land stumble out of their slumber, grateful to their heroes. Ness, however, has had his faith completely shaken by the Starman, and his very near defeat. He hears a very distant melody, the fifth melody. It's so faint. It calls to him from an exit to the base which lets out at the bottom of a narrow, snowy canyon. A gentle rain falls on the snow, melting it gradually with each drop. This is Rainy Circle. The melody again presents itself to Ness, faint as ever. Ness doesn't get a vision this time, and instead of relief at another melody under his belt, Ness feels nothing but despair. Returning to the laboratory with their now sizable crew, different people are getting to know each other. They're socializing, and there could be some odd little interactions. Brick Road asks for Andonuts' help in creating the ultimate dungeon. Hey, Doc, I got a little pitch for you. The photo man is fascinated by the Mr. Saturns and takes many pictures of the curious little creatures. Finally, Jeff works up the courage to ask his father for help. However, Andonuts is currently in conversation with Applekid, who is absolutely fascinating to him. Andonuts shows off one of the Apple Kid's inventions as Jeff tries to talk to him. He can't believe this. It's like his father is proud of Apple Kid. He's giving this stranger validation that Jeff has sought from him his whole life. Jeff becomes short with his father and asks for him to make another flying machine like the one he made for him last time. Andonuts, caught off guard by Jeff's tone, agrees. The trio takes off from Winters and sets a course for Chomo. Jeff is upset about his dad, and Ness is still really shaken by the encounter with the Starman. Paula tries to raise morale and keep them together, but she's not successful. They're well on their way when the engine of the flying machine starts to make strange noises. They're in trouble. Paula looks out the window to see they're flying over a beach town. We just gotta make this thing go a little further and we can crash land in the water. But the machine simply isn't going to make it that far. Jeff tinkers with some wires under the control panel and manages to boost the machine into overdrive just far enough to have a crash landing into the water. The trio sits on the beach, watching the flying machine sink beneath the waves. So much for the great inventor Andonuts, Jeff says before walking off. Ness and Paolo follow after him. They ask around about where they are and discover that they're in the beach town of Summers. Chomo is just on the other side of the bay, but they still need a way to get there. The three take in their surroundings and try their hardest to focus on the mission, but it's hard to in a town where everyone seems to be so relaxed. No one wants to go anywhere. People seem content to lie on the beach. The weather is the same every day. Ness, fresh off his failure, is a little shaken up. He was helpless against the Starman and was only saved by his friends, and his confidence has taken a massive blow. As a response to the fear he feels, Ness begins to lean into the relaxed lifestyle of Summers, suggesting detours from the mission such as eating Italian ice and lying on the beach. If he focuses on relaxing, it'll distract him from the weight of the mission given to him. His fear is slowly replaced with the indifference of someone permanently on island time. For the first time, Paula seems annoyed with him. After asking around town by herself, Paula hears of a submarine owner that hangs out at the exclusive hotspot known as the Stoic Club. 
They try to get in, but they're rudely turned away, attributing their rejection to their status as pedestrian juice drinkers. Jeff and Paula start to storm off, pissed and insulted. But Ness stays rambling on in his beachy false positive nihilism, going on about, Who needs missions? Life should be our mission, man. Let's live, not have aliens live for us, you know, guys? The bouncer lights up at Ness's pretentious words and lets Ness in. As Ness enters, he tells Paula and Jeff not to wait up. It might be a while. Once in, Ness explores the club, smugly thinking to himself that he's the only one smart enough to be accepted by the higher educated elite. But then he starts actually listening to what these people are saying, and the truth becomes clear. We spend so much time worrying about what kind of planet we're going to leave our children, when really we should be worrying about what kind of children will leave our planet. Trust the process, man. Trust the process. Why did Nietzsche kill God? Maybe we should stop asking, where's Waldo? And instead ask, why is Waldo? These people don't actually believe in anything. They're just boring adults like the rest of the world. The final straw is Ness seeing a group of men philosophizing over a rock. Coincidentally, the same rock that Ness watched Paula sell to the businessman for $40. No one actually knows anything. Disappointed and embarrassed, Ness finally finds the man with the submarine and anticlimactically taps him on the shoulder. Ness leaves the club with the submarine man to discover that Paula and Jeff are nowhere to be found. Feeling a little abandoned, which is rich because he's the one who abandoned them, Ness heads down to the beach where he finds Paula and Jeff hanging out with some new kid, dressed in a karate gi. Who's this? This is our new friend Pooh. He's going to be part of our group now. Pooh approaches Ness and bows before him. I have traveled far to meet you, Ness. It is an honor to finally be in your company. Ness is kind of being an asshole about this. Well, don't I get some say in who joins our group? Just then, there is a massive burst from the water as a 20-story kraken shows up out of nowhere. (sighs) Ness gets ready to fight. Here we go again. However, before Ness has a chance to summon even a little psychic energy, Pooh flies into the air and hurls himself at the Kraken. With basically one hit, the Kraken is completely obliterated and goes crashing back into the water in a million pieces. Pooh lands beside them, all of them dumbstruck. Does that kind of thing happen to you often? End of episode. Episode 8, The Prince of Delam. Similar to how we met Ness in Episode 1, we open up on a boy's bedroom. But besides the fact that it's a boy in a bedroom, everything about the scene is opposite. Pooh, the boy sleeping, lies flat on his back, but less like a vampire and more just put together he's cool he's got this cool ponytail he's got this real disciplined vibe to him he's just he's just the opposite of ness bedhead is not an option for Pooh. there are no posters no toys on the floor only the natural lighting of his huge balcony that overlooks the magical floating kingdom of delam Pooh gets up to start the day and we immediately get the sense that he's the man 
His name is literally Pooh, yet he seems impossible to make fun of. Nothing seems to get to Pooh. Not the good stuff or the bad stuff. There's no sense of anything behind his expressions besides that of his mission. And as he exits this palace he lives in, because he's a prince in this land, he walks around this floating city, this beautiful ancient floating city called Dalam, and it's surrounded by dreamy pink clouds. And as he walks, old men remind him that today is his big day, the day where he completes his training with his master. Pooh reaches a floating rock spire at the edge of the village, secluded from everything else. This place is known as the Place of Emptiness, and it is the testing site for Pooh's training in the ways of Moo, a special and stupid-sounding form of martial arts. Ropes dangle from the spire's tips, challenging Pooh to scale them. But before Pooh can even start, a gorgeous woman appears next to him and begs Pooh to postpone training and hang with her instead. Your master said it was okay. And Pooh wordlessly shoves her aside and heads towards the spire anyway. And as he walks towards the spire, behind him, the girl vanishes into thin air. Pooh has passed the first test. Pooh climbs to the top of the spire and sits down, ready to begin his final lesson. He shuts his eyes. Everything becomes black. We hear an old man's voice greet Pooh in the darkness. He seems to be everywhere. Master Pooh. Final training begins now. The voice tells Pooh, In order to complete your trial, you must allow me to break your legs. Pooh will have to allow his master to break Pooh's legs. Without a thought, Pooh accepts. And there's a terrible crack. <laughs> For the first time, we hear Pooh feel something. Pain. The old man continues with his questions. So, Prince Pooh, you cannot walk, as your legs are broken. Next, I will tear your arms off. I shall then take your arms and feed them to the crows. The taking of your arms, do you accept this? Without hesitation, Pooh answers yes again. There's another crack, even more painful sounding than the last. The old man continues. We hear another crack that's quickly cut off by... The sound of nothing. An eerie nothing. Only darkness. But something now appears in the darkness. The disembodied head of Pooh's master, outlined by ghostly lines of platinum white. The head grows a bony hand that reaches toward us, grabbing what looks like Pooh's eyes. Before it can clutch them, the old man throws us a look that can only communicate the question, Do you accept? Our head nods, and the hands snatch our eyes away. We now see 
a psychedelic background that's identical to the ones you see when you battle in the game Earthbound. Even though Pooh's ears are gone, he somehow hears one final question. So, Prince Pooh, now I can only communicate directly with your mind. Your mind is all you have left. In the end, I will take your mind. Though you probably don't want to allow that, do you? So, you can't answer? You can't even move? Are you sad? Are you lonely? If you lose your mind, you also lose any feelings of sadness. Do you accept this? I will take your mind, Principal. Know that I will possess it. The psychedelic background melts away, and Pooh seems to melt away with it. He opens his eyes again to see his master standing before him. Pooh's limbs are still there. His eyes are open, and he can hear the birds chirping. Pooh has passed the final trial. We then cut to where the story from the previous episode left off, and we realize that Pooh has been narrating this to Ness, Paula, and Jeff while all aboard the submarine they are shocked they are horrified they've <laughs> they've met no one like Pooh. everything up to this point has just been kind of silly even the aliens Pooh is the most serious disciplined person they've ever met and on this submarine they are completely submerged heading through a coral reef on their way to scaraba a town in the country of chomo you're gonna have to trust me these places are real Paula is really impressed by Pooh's story and is wrapped in attention. That's crazy. Ness notices this and goes out of his way to make it seem as if all of that was no big deal. Pooh tells Ness that it is a big deal. Dalam houses the next sanctuary location and Ness will have to learn to teleport in order to go there with him. It will not be easy training for Ness. Ness gulps and tries to play it off. Like, yeah, he can do it. He's, he's, the, chosen, he's the chosen one, duh. He can do it. He has to do it. He'll do it. The group arrives in Scariba, a village on the edge of the desert that is architecturally reminiscent of ancient Egypt. Pooh proposes, much like Fred from Scooby-Doo, that the group split up. He must train with Ness alone in the desert if they want to get to Dalam. He recommends that Jeff and Paula continue to head through the desert toward the far south side of Chomo to find the subsequent sanctuary location. That way, they save time. Ness doesn't really want to be split up from Paula, but is at least relieved she won't be pairing off with Pooh. So, he agrees. Ness and Pooh head out to the dunes where they intend to train. Pooh tells Ness that teleporting is one of the most advanced psychic abilities to master, and that doing so requires complete coordination and focus of his mind, body, and soul in order to accomplish it. This leads into a training montage where Ness just gets the piss beaten out of him by Pooh. How is this kid so good at this? He's the same age as Ness? He's just a kid too. Focus, Ness. You are distracted by your own pride. We are alone out here. Who are you worried will see all this? Pooh slaps Ness. Ness is getting Ow. angry with him. Ow! Did you stop? Come on, man. Ah, come on! <laughs> you must not feel embarrassed. You must not be prideful. Stay focused. Pooh slaps him again. Ness takes a deep breath. This is gonna take a while. 
Paula and Jeff travel through the forest, slowly making their way across the dunes. They didn't realize quite how big this desert was, and they wished they had maybe come up with a better strategy than just walking across it. Suddenly, something shoots across the sky. Jeff knows by now that he's either going to have to fight that thing or befriend that thing, and he goes, What the heck is that? And lands with a massive thud a quarter of a mile off from Paula and Jeff. Paula and Jeff run after the object and discover it's some kind of massive rock-like material that has wedged itself into the sand with its impact. There's also a small little hatch on the top of it, though. Paula and Jeff look at each other for a moment as if to say, Are we really going in there? They sigh and walk toward it. Inside, they find a massive maze-like complex of tunnels. What do you think it is? Where do you think it goes? Honestly, I've stopped asking questions about this sort of thing. As they make their way through the maze, the tension seems to fall a little bit. They're alone in this thing, it seems like, and they're not in immediate danger. They, they start to make small talk in the absence of peril. Jeff goes right for the gut. You ever been in love, Paula? What, me? Oh, I, I don't know. Maybe. But, I don't know. Jeff eyes her suspiciously. You love Ness, don't you? What? No! That'd be gross! I don't love Ness? What gave you that idea? Jeff shrugs. Just a feeling. Paula goes on. I'm not sure I really know what love is yet. Why, have you ever been in love? Jeff is quiet for a moment. There's this person that I go to school with. Sometimes it can be really hard to tell a person you love them. Nobody, Nobody teaches you that. Jeff's thought is interrupted by a sound that seems to come from the wall. It's a faint, ugh, sound. It scares the hell out of Paula and Jeff, and they jump back. Paula turns her flashlight up at the wall to reveal Brick Row. If you don't remember Brick Row, Brick Row's that weird guy that Paula, Ness, and Jeff found in Belch's laboratory, the one obsessed with dungeons. And right now, Brick Row is not looking too hot. His body has become physically ingrained in the stone wall, with part of his body also being made up of stone now. He's not the same Brick Road as before. He's fully evolved. He's a, he's a changed man. And Paula's like, Brick Road? Is that you? And Brick Road replies, All of this is me. What do you mean? I just came from your father's lab, Jeff. He did it. By God, the madman actually did it. Did what? Let me show you. With this, the entire structure that they're in begins to shake. From the outside, we can see that the entire thing is rising out of the sand. It reveals... Dungeon Man. Brick Road's new form. It's a massive stone idol, 10 stories tall, with a face and little legs and little arms. Dungeon Man gently spits Paula and Jeff out through his mouth onto the sand. He talks much more clearly in this form with a booming deep voice.
Paula and Jeff stand in complete awe of Dungeon Man. They tell him about their current quest, and Dungeon Man agrees to help them get to the other side of the desert. He lets them sit atop his head and begins slowly moving in giant steps across the wasteland. Back with Ness and Pooh, they're still in the midst of training, but Ness has gotten substantially better than when they last saw him. Ness is able to avoid a lot more of Pooh's attacks and spar with him much more formidably. However, Pooh is still able to get under Ness's skin and frustrate him. As he does this, Pooh goes in for an attack, but to his surprise, Ness suddenly teleports behind Pooh and delivers a counterattack. Ness is just as shocked as Pooh. I did that. I did that. Pooh bows low to Ness. You're ready. Using teleportation, the two arrive back in Dalam. Pooh leads Ness to the Pink Cloud, the sixth sanctuary location. Dalam being a floating city itself, Pink Cloud is naturally a pink cloud within the floating city. Ness hears the sixth melody and sees a flash of... Anna? The girl from the Nintendo Vision? Only she's a few years older than she was in Ness's Vision. She almost looks like well, familiar. I don't know. She's familiar. But just like that, she's gone. Ness is back with Pooh on Pink Cloud. Your journey is drawing to a close, Ness, and yet your most challenging trials are still yet ahead of you. Each sanctuary location you visit unlocks new power within you as you harness the power of the earth itself. Feel it coursing through you. Learn to direct it and use it at your will. As he's focused, a light from above illuminates Ness and Pooh's faces. Without us seeing it, they look up at it. Pooh's mouth is agape. Incredible. Dungeon Man drops Paula and Jeff off at the edge of the desert. They stand on the border of a great swamp. Dungeon Man thanks them for being the first to tackle... They tell him that it was their pleasure, but that he might want to try and make it a little harder. There's a lot to do in there, but none of it's very hard. Dungeon Man takes the note gracefully and heads back into the desert. Well... Still no sign of Ness and Pooh. Should we just keep going? Pooh said the next sanctuary was somewhere within a great swamp. This looks like the right place. They head into the swamp, water up above their knees as they walk through the overgrown vegetation. Ew, Jeff, that's disgusting! That wasn't me, Paula. Paula and Jeff turn around to see a green and chunky ooze foaming from out of a sewer pipe draining into the swamp. A voice seems to come from all around them. Eventually, all roads lead back here. All parts of me end up here. It's Master Belch, and he's all over. This guy again? The water around them rises up as they realize that all of the muck, all of the gunk around them is actually part of Master Belch. He's bigger now. As he comes to form, he's easily ten times the size as he was before. Jeff and Paula try to fight him, but they can't catch a break. They're getting their asses handed to them. Just as things are looking their grimmest, Ness and Pooh teleport right beside Paula and Jeff, scaring the crap out of them. Ness doesn't miss a beat. He channels his energy the way he saw himself doing Delon and yells, Yeah! 
Ness summons a rainstorm of little tiny stars that come crashing down from outer space straight into Belch. The stars pierce through Belch and burn him up as they hit him. He shouts in agony as he is burned to a crisp. Once Paula and Jeff realize they're out of danger, Paula gives Ness a big hug, but breaks away when she catches Jeff shooting at her a snicker. Jeff's such a dick. There's a small moment of relief and levity before the four children realize the gravity of the task that still awaits them. They look on grimly, deeper into the swamp. End of episode. Episode 9, Overcoming Shyness. The group, now reunited, make their way deeper into the swamp, aimlessly searching for the Your Sanctuary location. On a beached area of the swamp, Ness thinks he sees something and rushes toward it, believing it to be what they're looking for. But when they get there, it's revealed to be a wrecked helicopter, the same helicopter that Pokey escaped in back in Foresight. Pokey can't be far. Pooh tenses at Ness's words. So is he the one watching us then? Pooh stares at a bush around 20 feet away from them. Jeff and Ness freeze. They're being watched? Paula eases their apprehension by convincing them to keep moving forward. They just beat Master Belch. Twice. They can handle whatever's watching them. Keeping their guard up, the gang continues on, scanning the area for Pokey. Eventually, the gang comes across a cave. Right when they're about to enter, Pooh stops in his tracks and fires a thunderbolt at the branch of a nearby tree, knocking whoever was watching them out of it. Out from the tree falls a small, green creature. The gang circles it, ready to take it on. But when the creature gets to its feet, the only move it makes is a rude one. It stares at the ground, not making eye contact, and fiddling with its frail hands, unsure of what to do with them. Pooh goes for the kill, but Paula stops him. Not everything is an enemy, Pooh. Pooh strongly disagrees. Anyone who watches me is my enemy. Their argument is interrupted by the green creature who raises its hand to speak bashfully. Paula kindly gives the little guy the floor. Shaking in his metaphorical but hypothetically adorable boots, the creature works up the courage to say, Hello, my n- Your what? My name. Your name? What's your name? It's... It's... Suddenly he faints. Jeff lights up, immediately understanding what's happening here. Because, brother... He's been there. Oh, he's just got low self-esteem. They continue into the cave where they are greeted by dozens of these little creatures, all trying to conceal themselves but too self-conscious to fully commit to their hiding spots. After prying it out of them, the creatures reveal themselves to be a species known as the Tenda. Because they have been isolated from the world for so long, they have evolved to be incredibly shy, socially inept creatures. As they attempt to travel deeper into the cave, our heroes discover a giant boulder that is too heavy for any of the kids to move. Seeing the Tendas' potential strength in numbers, Paula tries to convince the Tendas to help them move the rock to no avail. The Tendas don't believe they can do it. Paula's just saying that stuff to be nice. Jeff tells Paula to step aside. He's got this. He pulls out a book called Overcoming Shyness. The Tenda cautiously move closer, hesitant but not disinterested. Jeff takes a seat on a rock and begins to read as if he were a kindergarten teacher. The Tenda obediently sit down in front of Jeff and listen. 
Figuring that this might take a while, Ness, Paula, and Pooh sit too, having no choice but to listen to the book's lessons. In a fun montage, we watch Jeff read whimsical bits of advice like, You have no choice but to love yourself. And, No one is ever thinking about you. And newsflash, that's a good thing. The Tenda seem to be responding to it, leaning in and even asking some questions. Feeding off of the crowd, Jeff stands up like a preacher and really starts getting into the book. Hours later, Jeff is near the end of the book, but it seems as though he won't have to finish it because the Tenda are clearly drunk off the book's wisdom. One particularly brave Tenda takes a leap of faith and does the ultimate expression of self. It begins to dance. Then, soon enough, all of them start dancing. It's a massive Tenda party, and it's loud. Without meaning to, Ness has taken some of the book's words to heart and looks to Paula. He faces her, heart beating, face crimson, and asks her to dance. She blushes and nods. This would be a really romantic moment if it weren't for the fact that neither of them have ever danced before. They keep stepping on each other's feet and neither of them have any rhythm. Okay, so a romantic dance isn't in the cards for them, but that's okay. Ness and Paula, both embarrassed, slink off to the side and try to distract themselves from their failed attempt by focusing on the proxy dancing option, Pooh. When Ness and Paula tried and failed, Pooh has a different problem entirely. He doesn't know what he's looking at and is completely out of his element. Ness and Paula try to push him onto the dance floor, but Pooh snaps at them in protest. This is not the mission. All of his life, Pooh has trained for scenarios where he gives himself over to his mission. His limbs, his sight, his hearing, and even his sense of self. He can't dance. Ness, realizing what he's saying as he says it, exclaims to Pooh that his mission is going to be over soon. And then what? He's going to have to find out. And he might as well start now. Both Pooh and Ness sulk in those words. What would be next? Do they want there to be a next? We cut to the next morning. The party has died down and it's done the trick. After having their late party emotional gush session, where everyone says how they really feel to each other, all of the Tenda seem more open, more themselves, and and more willing to help the group. The Tenda elder corners Ness and the crew and thanks them by gifting them with the Tenda Kraut, an ancient delicacy to their tribe. In an enthusiastic send-off, the Tenda shout their thanks as they work together to move the giant boulder and allow our heroes passage deeper into the cave. As they travel deeper, the dark depths of the cave begin to not be so dark anymore. Firefly-like lights begin to drizzle over its walls, illuminating the path before them. It's beautiful. The lights are so bright they almost seem man-made, LED even. The kids begin to wonder as they take in the sight, is this man-made or is it natural? Or are those things the same thing? Then, in the middle of what has become a great hall of lights, Ness halts realizing that this is it. This is the sanctuary. He stops and closes his eyes. In his mind, Ness sees his father holding him as a baby. He smiles at the thought, but fails to enjoy the moment as it is interrupted by Jeff going, Aww. 
Ness opens his eyes to discover that giant walls of text made of light are scrolling through the wall as if the entire cave were a giant jumbotron. The text reads, Don't put me down, Dad. This moment has the potential to be alien and scary, except for some reason it's not. Instead of being alien, it has the vibe of a blimp that someone rented to tell someone that they loved them. Before Ness can say what's happening, the wall does it for him. The scrolling text begins to read, I'm Ness. It's been a long road getting here. Soon I'll be... Soon I'll be... Soon I'll be... What will happen to us? What? What's happening? My thoughts are being written out on the wall, or... Are they? Pooh suggests that they ignore it and continue on. Where's the next sanctuary? Again, Ness is about to answer, but the wall does it for him. The fire spring of the lost underworld. Good enough for Pooh. They begin to make their way back to Tenda Village, but not before there's one last message on the wall. Scrolling past them, in the biggest letters yet, the wall reads, Your name. Yes, your name, the viewer. The idea here is that in the game, when you get to this part, earlier in the game it asks you to put your name in, your name being the name of the player. And then it shows up here, and it's a cool moment that breaks the fourth wall, and we really wanted to replicate that. And so as we were thinking about this, we realized that most streaming services these days have that information. They have your name. Netflix does that. HBO Max does that. And so it would be really easy to customize the episode for people watching so that as you're watching it, your literal name, the name of the person watching it to whatever account you're logged into, scrolls across the Lumine Hall. It would be a really cool moment that also has a lot of meme potential, whereas part of the audience would definitely feel really touched and, and, and seen by that. I think there's also a large amount of audience, you know, if you're watching on an ex's Netflix account, it might be a little creepy, but it, it's kind of supposed to be a little creepy, you know? It's, or it's the first time that the viewer becomes part of the narrative, and that ultimately does have a payoff later in the story, so we'll get there. Paula asks Ness about that final name that showed up, but Ness has no idea. They're just there. They return to Tenda Village and ask them if they know anything about the Lost Underworld. Conveniently enough, they do. The Tendas show Ness and his friends to the hole that leads to the Lost Underworld. They tell him that a porky-looking kid broke into the village and made his way down there. The Lost Underworld is one of the deepest caves on the planet and goes very near to the Earth's core. No Tenda has ever had the courage to travel down there. However, the chief Tenda tells Ness that, According to Tenda legend, the group heads down into the hole, climbing down by rope. It's an extremely long climb down in the dark. Does this thing ever end? Jeff shouts out from above. Let me check. Pooh lets go of the rope and drops down as the others gasp. For a long time, all is quiet, until at last they hear Pooh land down with a big th Jeff grimaces. Just... I'm alright. Come on down. 
He doesn't mean... I think he does, Ness says. Ness takes a deep breath and lets go of the rope. He falls and falls and falls, but his descent gets slower as he reaches the bottom of the pit. As he reaches the ground, he lands gently on his feet. I don't understand. We're so deep inside the earth, gravity doesn't quite work the same way, I suppose. Pooh responds. Paula and Jeff follow shortly after Ness and land gently beside them. It's only then that the group actually notices their surroundings. The cavern is thriving and lush with life. Magnolia trees and other ancient-looking plants are all over the place. Birds and flies the size of Ness's face flit about through the air. That's when they realize that it's bright as day in the cavern. There's no sun in sight, but the cavern is so large that they couldn't possibly see the top of it, and instead it just looks like the sky. This is the strangest place I've ever... Paula's thought is interrupted by massive footsteps. In a scene that mirrors Jurassic Park, a massive brontosaurus walks by the children and takes a bite out of a nearby tree. Scene. In a wide, bird's-eye view shot, we pull out until the kids are little specks compared to the entire area, which is revealed to be populated by all kinds of dinosaurs. They're all in awe. A land lost to time, Jeff says. As they walk through the field probably as the first humans to ever do so, Paula gasps and clutches at her chest. Do you feel that? Ness turns to her, worried. Feel what? Paula is confused. I I feel my parents. Like, in your head? Psychically? Paula shakes her head. No, different than that. In my heart, it, it feels like they're here with me. Jeff scoffs. Well, Paula, unless your parents are a triceratops, I don't really think they're down here with us. Paula probes deeper. No, not just them. I feel... everyone. Freeze! Paula's thought is cut off as they turn to see a tenda pointing a spear at them. Who goes there? Paula turns to Ness. I thought they said no tenda has ever come down here. Ness shrugs. Maybe they don't know about this one. The Tenda is frustrated that the kids don't seem to be intimidated by him. Did you come from the above world? No Tenda has ever been to the above world. Ness explains to this Tenda that that's actually not true, and that there's a whole tribe of Tendas living up there. Ness presents him with the Tenda Kraut as a sign of proof. This surprises the Tenda. Another tribe of Tendas? The Tenda takes the group to his tribe of Tendas, who are polar opposites of the Tendas from above. They are extremely outgoing and even a little brash. It's somehow become nightfall in this cavern, and the Tendas have set up a campfire to welcome their guests. They tell Ness all about their customs, and Ness tells them about what the other Tendas are like, which these Tendas find very amusing. These Tendas are a blast, and they keep Jeff and Pooh entertained. In a very rare instance, we actually see Pooh smiling. Something is eating away at Paula, though, as she breaks away from the group. Ness follows after her. What's wrong? Ness asks. Everything is connected. Us, the Tenda tribes, the whole world. I can feel everyone we've ever met from down here bound together. That's why Gygus is coming here, isn't it? You think his influence could reach more people from a place like this? I don't know... This isn't the kind of place you just stumble upon. 
Gygus came here for a reason. Nest nods. Paula notices that this topic might be bumming Ness out a little bit, and that she's finally got a moment alone with him. Paula gets closer to Ness and grabs his hand. What was that dance you were trying to show me earlier? Oh, um... Ness timidly grabs Paula's waist with his open hand, and Paula rests her head on his shoulder. Instead of all the complicated footwork they were attempting before, the two just sway. Is this right? Paula asks. Yeah, this is it. Hey guys, check it out! Jeff is calling to them from the campfire and points at Pooh, who is doing a traditional dance from Delam. The tendas around him imitate the dance and Pooh laughs with them as they try and keep up. It's a nice moment of levity and all four of them seem really happy for a moment. As they sleep that night, Ness is awoken by a sound. The final melody. Ness gets out of his sleeping bag. Paula, Jeff, and Pooh still lie sleeping on either sides of him. The melody repeats over and over again, calling to Ness from far out across the cavern. It seems to be coming from an orange light source a ways off. As if in a trance, Ness wanders away from the camp toward the light. As he gets closer and closer, he realizes that the orange light is actually coming from the tip of an active volcano on the horizon. As he realizes what it is, Ness snaps out of his trance, and there's the sound of something rustling in the grass a ways off. Fearing a dinosaur, Ness tries to turn back toward the camp, but he's been completely turned around. The melody calls to him again from the volcano. Lacking other options, Ness heads toward it. As Ness scales the volcano, he hears the rustling again. It's been following him. Ness speeds up. He makes it to the peak where he finally arrives at the fire spring, the eighth and final sanctuary location. However, the melody does not immediately present itself this time. A low growl comes from behind Ness. Ness turns to see the carbon dog, a canine made of flames of all the colors of the rainbow. It growls and paces around Ness. It's then that Ness notices another dog behind him, the diamond dog, a dog made entirely out of diamond, just as colorful as the other. These two dogs circle Ness like yin and yang. On opposite sides of Ness, they get real low and growl as if they're getting ready to pounce. Finally, they pounce and Ness ducks, Instead of attacking him, the dogs attack each other viciously, biting and scraping at one another. As they wrestle, they lose track of their surroundings and crash into Ness. All three of them go falling into the volcano. As Ness falls, he hears the eighth melody and all eight melodies played together. In an extreme close-up, Ness's eyes shoot open. From his POV, we see a pink, cone-shaped house made of a cloud-like material. 
it looks a lot like the world that Ninten traveled to on his journey. Where am I? End of episode. Episode 10. No crying until the end. Ness stands in a dreamlike place that feels foreign, but also familiar. He can't seem to place it. He notices that he's now in his pajamas, mirroring the state that he was in at the beginning of the story. He looks around, confused. The world seems to be a combination of bizarre details that lay rest in the back of his brain, in trivial moments that he encountered on his journey. The world is made up of the sprawling, grassy hills of Onet, decorated with giant vegetables burrowed in the ground. The giant buildings of Forside are also there, but they're built into the land masses. A, a, a skyscraper here is made out of dirt. It's just a hill with windows. It's weird. And there's also stuff like anthropomorphic bunnies walking around, going about their day, not paying any attention to Ness. None of the rules here make any sense to us, but somehow Ness understands them suddenly there's a sharp bark and immediately ness readies himself for battle he pivots to face his new foe a dog sprinting full speed towards him ness prepares a psi attack but is ambushed by a second dog that jumps on him from behind thinking this is it ness gives himself to the dogs but luckily for him today is not his day to die as the dogs lick his face clean Ness gets up and looks over these two puppies. Are these the same dogs that he faced at the fire spring? He carefully pets them, these panting mutts who seem to obey his every command. On a second glance, Ness clocks that they have collars. He reads them both. The black dog is named Ness, and the white dog is also named Ness. Ness, missing his dog King, decides to let the dogs follow him as he explores this new place. As he treks through the dream, the land transitions from just a place that borrows from Ness's history to full-on being an art exhibit of Ness's inner psyche. Wherever Ness looks, he sees a different piece of pop-up theater that seems to dramatize different parts of his life. Many stages, minimalist in setting, but still detailed enough for Ness to recognize what they're interpreting. Scatter the grassy knolls all around him. In one scene, he watches his mom sitting on his family couch watching TV with him, his sister, and King. But instead of in his house, it's, it's on the grass. In another scene, he watches his parents from the back, unable to see their faces as they stand on a cliff, rocking an infant version of himself to sleep. They are reenacting their first night back from the hospital after Ness's birth. Ness joins them and faces in the same direction, looking down from the cliff they stand on and seeing a dense purple ocean beneath them that seems to stretch on forever. He's confused. Where, where is he right now? Then, from behind him, we hear a, Welcome, Ness. We cut to the outside world. Ness's body lies motionless at the edge of the fire spring. The dogs he was fighting are nowhere to be found, and it seems like a good amount of time has passed. We hear footsteps that are followed by a Ness, and Ness is soon surrounded by Paula, Jeff, and Pooh. They freak out. What happened to him? For the first time, Paula is the one who looks scared. Pooh comforts her, clarifying that Ness is probably in another plane of existence, undergoing his final trial. For the time being, they need to protect him and travel to the Cave of Time. Back in the dreamscape, 
Ness finds himself face to face with a flying man. The same breed of flying man that he witnessed Ninten get acquainted with. The flying man greets Ness and welcomes him. This is Ness's magicant. A manifestation of both his mind and its connection with the world around him. His new friend announces that he, the flying man, is here to guide Ness. As they walk together, Ness and the flying man watch more moments from Ness's life. They watch the good moments, like the first time he ever ate steak. And like Ness's mom is saying to him, Oh, so that's your favorite food then, huh? Couldn't you have chosen something a, a little less expensive? And they also watch the bad moments, such as the day where he struck out on a full count and lost the entire game for his little league team. We witness Pokey berate him in front of the other players. That's what we get for counting on someone like you. After each moment, the world around him shifts slightly. Sometimes the color of the sky changes. Sometimes a rabbit glimmers and transforms into a person from his past. But most concerningly, it seems like whichever moment he chooses to linger on results in one of the dogs following him growing a little bigger. If it's what he considers a happy memory, the white one grows. And if it's a bad one, the black dog grows. Ness asks the flying man why the dogs are getting bigger, to which the flying man replies, When you look at yourself, Ness, there are two sides to you, two narratives. The one you want to be the truth, and the one you fear is the truth. Your reality is... Ness finishes it for him, unconvinced. Your reality becomes the one you choose to feed. I know, my dad read that off a fortune cookie once. The flying man nods knowing that Ness isn't in the mood to listen to his wisdom. They continue their walk, passing by weird, irreverent little slices of Ness's mind, like the snowman that he and his sister made the previous winter, now melting. A choir of singing flowers, and a single tiny grave that reads, Here lies Buzz Buzz. Ness chooses to take in these pieces only for a moment, actively trying to not make either dog bigger. But that changes when a certain memory catches his eye. In front of them is a bench. On it sits a young Pokey and a young Ness, both around six years old. This is them meeting for the first time. The flying man asks, Pokey, he was your friend? Yeah, he was my first friend. They go silent as they watch the children interact. It's nothing special. It's honestly a little boring. They talk about cars as they pass by and which one they'd want when they grow up. Ness wants a Camaro. Pokey wants a Mercedes. Back in the outside world, Ness's friends enter the cave of time. Jeff and Pooh carrying Ness's body. Jeff worries what will happen if they go back in time while Ness is unconscious. But Paula argues that there's no time to wait. Suddenly, they stop in their tracks when they hear a crackle of rock from above. They look up at the cave ceiling and see the dark outline of a, a giant spider. Before they can process it, the spider leaps down to the cave floor, landing with a metallic thud. The spider laughs. But when the spider laughs, it, it doesn't sound how you'd imagine a spider laughing. It sounds like a, a pig exiting out from the shadows. It is not a spider, but a giant mech with arachnid-like legs, piloted by none other than Pokey. Paula yells, and immediately starts attacking him. Pokey snorts at her and pilots the mech with a surprising amount of skill as it zigzags around her fire and ice attacks and whips one of its legs right into her chest, knocking her back against a huge rock. 
You look pathetic, Ness, letting your girlfriend fight your battles for you. As Paula and Pokey continue to fight, we hear Ness in the Flying Man's conversation. It's a shame he grew mean and dropped you as a friend. He didn't. I dropped him. We focus in on Pokey in his robot cockpit, sweaty and snorting, utterly devoted to ruining these children's lives and destroying the world. The sounds of elementary school children talking to Nest leak into the scene. You live next to Porky, right? You mean Pokey? Yeah, the piggy. Yeah, he's my neighbor. Is he as ugly in person? I hear his parents beat him because he eats all the Maybe food Maybe you guys should move. We cut back to Magicant, where Ness looks like he just saw a ghost. Behind him, the black dog is now bigger than the white. They reach another cliff. This one overlooks a misty purple lake down below. Out from the lake protrudes a tentacle that reaches all the way up to the sky where Ness and the Flying Man currently reside. This tentacle is like a warped version of the famous fairy tale beanstalk. The Flying Man announces, Down below is the Sea of Eden. There lies the truth. The final piece of the puzzle that you must harness if you are ever going to defeat Gygas. The two approach the tentacle. Before making his descent towards the sea below, Ness takes one last look at the dogs. At this point, neither of them are puppies anymore, with the black one being around the size of a Great Dane. They almost look... Dangerous? Ness shakes it off and starts climbing down the tentacle. After scaling what feels like thousands of feet, Ness finds himself at the base of the tentacle, standing on top of the purple sea as if it were only a few feet deep. Looking around him, he sees giant spires of alien rock prickle themselves around different corners of the sea as monsters mindlessly slither around them. Behind him, Ness is unnerved to see the dogs have somehow followed him down below, standing behind him at attention, but occasionally sharing aggressive, feral looks at each other. These dogs are not friends. Their ears are back, and their body language is tense. Any moment now, one of them will try and strike the other. Ness tries to pet them both as a sign of good faith, but both snap at his fingers as if to say, it's either him or me. You cannot have both. Ness steps away, and tries his best to ignore the dogs, instead choosing to move forward with the flying man and try to find whatever he's supposed to find. He makes his way through mist, obscuring the rest of the sea before him, and finds a gulf surrounded by a dark, dense forest on all sides. In the middle of this body of water sits a Manny Manny statue, perched on a tiny five-by-five-foot island that serves as its platform. Ness exclaims, You again? How many times do I have to fight you? Ness runs towards the statue and takes a vicious swing with his bat, but out of nowhere, the statue manifests a bat of its own that clashes with Ness's bat. Ness recovers and flashes a PSI love that is effortlessly countered with a PSI attack of the statue's own. They're the same. The flying man says gravely, This is the evil in your heart, Ness. He is you. The only way to defeat him is to be more than you think you are. Ness ignores the flying man's words, tired of this self-reflection, just wanting it to be over with. He does attack after attack after attack, and with each of these attacks he dishes out, they seem to be dimming and becoming less powerful. He's giving in to his fear. 
Behind Nest, the dogs are now giant, even bigger than Carbon and Diamond Dog. Fighting for supremacy, the color of the land flickers, accelerating through the entire color wheel to the point where the world itself begins to glitch. Happening simultaneously in the Cave of Time, Pokey and Paula's battle is coming to a climactic end. Pokey, now bored, yells, See you later, suckers. Or I guess I should say, see you sooner. The mech bursts forward into the cave. Pooh yells that they can't let him travel back in time first. Who knows what he's going to do? They rush in after him, but they don't make it very far because there's a flash of light, followed by violent shaking. Pokey's done it. He's traveled back. Dangerous-looking rocks fall from the ceiling at a rapidly increasing rate. The cave's collapsing. They have to get out of there. Back in the Sea of Eden, Ness is panicking. He tries a PSI Starstorm. The statue does the same thing, and soon the entire sky above them is raining with comets. Neither know whose comets are whose. Ness, too stubborn to look up, stands his ground and continues to launch attacks as a comet plummets right at him. The comet shoots into the ground, and there's smoke everywhere. Ness rolls out of the smoke and frantically looks around. How did he survive that? Then the smoke clears, and it becomes apparent how he survived. Lying on the water is the flying man, fatally injured, having taken the bulk of the star storm himself. Ness runs to its side, flinging himself over the flying man's body, not wanting him to go. He's just a kid. He can't do this. Flying Man calmly presses Ness off of him. Ness blinks, and for a second, it isn't the Flying Man's body in front of him. It's Ninten's. And Ninten, dying, turns to him and he says, We're all kids. Sometimes you just forget. Ninten then dissolves into nothing. And Ness is left with these two canines trying to rip each other's throats out and the literal darkness that's in his heart. Out of hope, Ness runs away from the dogs, away from the statue. He doesn't know where he's going. He's just running. And he runs and he runs and he runs and he runs, not even looking where he's going until smack! He's banged his head into something obscured by the fog. Ness adjusts his eyes to see what it is, finally realizing that it's a payphone. Ness sees this payphone in the middle of the lake, just standing on top of the lake, this payphone, and he begins to shake. He climbs into the booth and starts punching a number in. This won't work. Why would this work? He puts the phone in his ear. There's silence on the other line as it appears to be going to voicemail. But then we hear a clunk. Hello? Hey, Mom. What's wrong? You sound sad. Are you okay? (laughs) Hey, what's wrong? Tell me right now. Please tell me what's the matter. Tell me what's wrong. I just... I just... Hey, hey, it's okay. It's all right. We can work this out. It'll be okay. What is it? I miss you. I miss you too, honey. And there's just... There's just a lot I gotta do today. And I just want to eat steak. And I, I don't think I can do the things that people want me to do. And I think I'm bad. 
says you're bad? Who's saying this to you? Who's saying you're bad? The universe. The universe? What does the universe know about you? Screw the universe. I know you, and I love you so much, and I think the universe knows nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Oh, honey, no problem. They give me the universe's phone number, because I have a few words for them, and it's not going to be pretty. It doesn't have a phone number, Mom. Of course it doesn't have a number, because that's true you, that you don't want to give up that person so I can call them and give them a piece of my mind. All right, sweetheart, my soap opera is really starting to steam up here, so I'm going to let you go, and I'm glad everything's okay, and I still want the universe's phone number, because I got some ass to kick. Okay. Bye, Mom. The phone is hung up, leaving Nesta stand, his head resting on the wall. He breathes, taking in the silence. Wait, Silence? Ness looks around. Outside the payphone, Ness doesn't see the two dogs fighting anymore. Instead, there's just one dog, and it's the one he knows very well. King wags his tail, waiting for Ness. He barks, ready for anything. Ness nods. He knows what he has to do. He makes his way back up the river towards the Manny Manny statue that sits motionless in the same place as before, but now things feel different. They are no longer the same. Ness is Ness. The Manny Manny statue is something else. Ness calmly strolls through the statue's PSI field and smashes off its head with one mighty swing of his bat. The head travels through the air. It's going, it's going, it's gone. Out of the park. Ness wakes up with a jolt. Where is he? A Mr. Saturn sits on his chest and cocks his head. He's up. Ness sits up. He's been laying on a gurney that's shallowly suspended in a hot spring. Ness! Paula comes running toward Ness and gives him a big hug. She hands him a towel and has him dry off. Ness soon discovers that everyone is here. Jeff and Pooh, Dr. Andonuts and Apple Kid, the Runaway Five, and of course a large gathering of Mr. Saturns. Paula explains to him that after the cave of the past was destroyed, they returned to Saturn Valley to have Ness recover and look for an alternate way to get to Gygus. Ness has been unconscious for a few days, and in that time, Gygus's power has already spread across the globe. Saturn Valley is one of the last safe havens. They've been working on a plan to get to Gygus, and Paula takes Ness to Jeff, Andonuts, and Apple Kid to show him what they've been working on. They are in the process of building a phase distorter, basically a time machine that looks like a giant metal Mr. Saturn that will allow the kids to travel to the distant past where Gygus is building his army and exerting his influence. Paula tells Ness that they will be ready to depart for the past soon and that Ness should get some rest before they go. Jeff works with his dad and Apple Kid on the phase distorter through the night. Jeff watches as Andonuts and Apple Kid work together on welding a piece of the machine. Andonuts pats Apple Kid on the back. Hey, Apple Kid, you think you can get me a bottled water from the Saturn hut? Says Jeff. Yeah, sure, Jeff. Anything you need. Apple Kid leaves. We need to talk, Dad. Huh? Andonuts hardly looks up. Dad, I'm talking to you. Andonuts finally looks up. Jeff proceeds to lay into his father a little bit. He talks about how he was always absent and that even when he lived just across the lake from where Jeff went to school, 
He never bothered to come visit. I idolized you as a kid because I thought you were the greatest inventor who had ever lived. You probably are the greatest inventor who's ever lived. So I kept making excuses about why you were never around. I wanted you to be the good guy so badly, but you didn't want to be. Even now, it's like I'm here with you and you forget that I'm your son. Andonuts lets this sink in. I, I didn't know you felt that way. Yeah, well, you do now. You know, I never knew my parents. I'm not sure I ever told you that I grew up in an orphanage. I suppose there's a lot of things I never told you. You're right, I haven't been present enough. Maybe I don't know how. For most of my life, I found fulfillment through my work. That was until your mother... Rest her soul. A- anyways, <clears throat> Andonuts tears up a bit. Jeff suddenly feels a pang of sympathy for his old man. Andonuts stumbles as he goes on. I didn't want to... I thought maybe you'd be better off finding your way through the world on your own, like I did. But I guess I never really found my way. Jeff puts his hand on his dad's shoulder. He points to a tool beside his father. You know, nobody ever taught me how to use one of those. Oh, this? It's actually quite a useful little tool. Let me show you. For a moment, father and son are reunited as they work together on the project. However, it's interrupted as there's a small burst from within the distorter. Bugger. Andonuts and Jeff realize they don't have enough of the material they were using to fuel the temporal interrupter. Zexonite. Jeff wakes Ness up. We have to go back to Onet. Ness is groggy and rubs his eyes as he gets up. Jeff explains to Ness the dilemma that they're facing and tells him that while there's not enough Zexonite in this era, it would likely be much more prevalent in a time when time travel had already been invented, as it would be needed to run their ships. Ness is confused where Jeff is going with this, but Jeff further explains that BuzzBuzz, the fly from another time that Ness told him about, surely traveled here in a time machine. If they go find the machine, they'll be sure to find more Zexonite. The group heads to Onet, where things have gotten incredibly bleak. The town is in shambles, as there are starmen everywhere. Ness was told that Gygus's influence had spread, but he never imagined this. The people of Onet have been forced into bondage. Ness is shocked as he sees the mayor of Onet in chains beside Frank and the Sharks. The four kids slink through the streets of Onet and manage to avoid detection. They head up the mountain and walk past Ness's house. Ness looks in the window and sees his mom and his sister inside. Ness's mother hears them outside, but instead of coming to greet him, not knowing what the sound came from, she shuts off the light and has Tracy hide out of view of the window. Pooh advises that they keep moving. There could be more starmen anywhere. They make it to the top of the mountain that overlooks Onet and find the crater site. Sure enough, upon closer inspection, the meteor that BuzzBuzz arrived in is actually an extremely sophisticated time machine. Jeff pokes around inside and pulls out a large lump of Zexonite. They got what they needed. They turn to go but are cut off by a Starman Deluxe. This is Ness's chance to prove himself. A rematch. However, instead of attacking the kids, the Starman Deluxe lets out a high-pitched whistle. Slowly, from all around them, more starmen descend from the sky and land all around the kids. There have got to be more than two dozen of them, and they're completely surrounded. Ness, Paula, Jeff, and Pooh all stand back to back to back to back. Let them come. 
In an extended battle sequence done in one shot, the Starmen descend upon the kids. Each of them are forced to use their most advanced fighting and technical skills to overcome this. Ness is summoning PK Starstorm like nobody's business. Paul hits Starmen over the head with her frying pan and manages to outwit the androids at every turn. Jeff sets off larger explosions than we've ever seen him combust before. Who is teleporting all over the place, showing off his martial arts and moving like a goddamn bat out of hell. When it's all said and done, the kids stand in the same places where they began, but surrounded not by the menacing starmen, but by their disassembled pieces. Returning to Saturn Valley with the Zexanite, Jeff and Andonauts boot up the phase distorter. It's ready to go, except... There's one final thing you kids need to know. Andonuts explains that this is the first time machine ever built on Earth and, as such, it's not particularly advanced. Its biggest failing is that organic matter will not be able to travel through it. Even in the time machines of the future, only a very small amount of organic matter was able to be transported through time, hence why Buzz Buzz would have had to transform himself into a fly before he time-traveled. You mean his name was Buzz Buzz before he was a fly? Jeff snarks. Andonut shows the kids to four androids he's built, each built in the image of one of the kids. Andonuts explains that he'll be able to upload their consciousnesses into the machines and that they'll be able to travel back in time in this form. Will we be able to come back and have you put us back in our bodies? Andonuts pauses for a moment. Truthfully, I don't know. It's a risk, but at this point, I'm not sure what other options we have. Hesitantly, all four kids agree. They're uploaded into their new bodies and only have a moment to adjust to their new forms before they're getting ready to depart in the phase distorter. This will take you as far back as you need to go, to the very center of the Earth, Andonuts explains. Before Jeff gets into the machine, Andonuts pulls his son aside. Look at you. Maybe you'll turn out better than your old dad after all. Andonuts gives Jeff a big hug, and then Jeff loads up with the rest of them. Kick this guy's ass for all of us back here. The group travels through time in a brief sequence that is reminiscent of the Stargate sequence from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Before long, they've arrived in the cave of the past, this time in the actual past. The cave is now a lifeless, maze-like complex of tube-shaped tunnels. It's incredibly ominous, and the four robot children head up the tunnels toward the sound of what is Shirley Gygus's army. They reach the main chamber, which is lined wall-to-wall -wall with starmen. Pokey stands before them, seemingly commanding them as their general. We now see how he was able to travel back in time despite being organic matter. Pokey is suspended within a massive crab-like mecha suit that towers 20 feet tall. Within the mech, Pokey is not looking good at all. His skin is a sickly green, as if it's begun to rot. A flaccid smile is glued permanently to his face, while the rest of his facial expressions are entirely unmoving. But behind Pokey is a massive throne-like pedestal on which rests a massive egg-like sack. The Devil Machine. On the Devil Machine is an image of Ninten's face, staring forward grimly. Ness, how nice of you to finally join us. We've been expecting you. Pokey taunts Ness from within his mech suit. Behold, Gygus. Pokey motions to the egg. Isn't it terrifying? I'm terrified too. Gygus cannot think rationally anymore. 
and he isn't even aware of what he's doing now. His own mind was destroyed by his incredible power. What an almighty idiot. Yep, that's what he is. <laughs> and you, you will be just another meal to him. Pokey's mech lunges toward the kids and they engage in an all-out brawl with him. The Starmen are about to step in and help Pokey, but Pokey orders them to stand down, ever prideful and insistent on wanting to beat Ness himself. The big problem here is that the kids are much slower in their robot forms, as they aren't quite adjusted to their new bodies. After a good bit of battle, Pokey knocks Paula to the ground. With Jeff and Pooh distracted by a laser that Pokey's fired at them, Pokey goes straight for Paula. Ness sees this and, almost in slow motion, dives in front of Paula. Putting himself on the line, Ness fires a thunderbolt at Pokey, which bounces off of the mech's glass face and ricochets straight into the devil machine, bursting a hole in the egg. Out from the devil machine comes a swirling mass of red chaotic energy. It begins to suck up everything it touches. This is Gygus. Starmen fly into it and it swallows up everything. You freaking moron, now you've done it. Inside Pokey's mech, we see that he's adjusting the dial on his built-in time machine to take him thousands of years into the future. Catch you losers later. Way later. Just like that, Pokey's mech suit opens up a temporal whirlpool and vanishes into it leaving the children alone with an increasingly large Gygus. The sound echoes around the chamber as Gygus continues to swirl all around it. Gygus rushes towards the children and they're swallowed up within him. The children are now falling, or are they floating? Either way, they're surrounded by Gygus's incomprehensible form. When he speaks, the sound echoes all around them. Paula shouts at Ness. Ness, do something. Ness takes a moment and focuses his energy. Ness psychically begins to project the eight melodies all around them, so that it sounds as if it is sung by a large choir. Gygus's form becomes instantly more chaotic, swirling faster and faster. A static-like energy seems to run all through him. The melody continues on. However, when the melody is done, nothing happens. What now, Ness? I don't know that was supposed to defeat him. But Gygus has become much too powerful. The melody would only weaken Gygus in his conscious state. With his mind entirely corrupted by his own power, the melody only serves to agitate Gygus. He cannot remember the emotional power it once held over him. Panicking, Ness attempts to throw any psychic attack he has in his arsenal at Gygus but any energy he produces just gets absorbed into Gygus and disappears almost instantly. There's a moment of despair 
as Ness realizes that there might not be anything left that he can do. He looks at Paula, Jeff, and Pooh. They share a moment, acknowledging that this could be the end. They grab hands. Paula closes her eyes. Everything is connected. Paula focuses and mentally reaches into herself. Please, help us. All across the world, we return to people that Ness and the kids have met on the journey as they hear Paula's message. Back in Saturn Valley, Andonuts, Apple Kid, the Mr. Saturns, and the Runaway Five hear the message. They stop what they're doing, grab each other's hands, and bow their heads. In Onet, Frank Fly and the mayor of Onet hear the message. Is there anyone out there? They look at each other for a moment and bow their heads. In Polestar Kindergarten, Paula's father and mother hear the voice. At Winter's Preparatory School, Tony hears the message. The royal family of Delam are bowed in the throne room, praying for Pooh's eventual safe return. Brick Row, the dungeon man, who is still wandering about Scaraba, hears the message and stops in his place. In Tenda Village, where the Tendas from above the Earth's surface have traveled to their sister tribe in the Lost Underworld, the Tendas from both tribes join hands and close their eyes to wish the kids well. Lots more flashes of people get spliced in. Everdread, the Stoic Club, Car Painter, Monotoli, the Tessie Watching Club, the Photo Man. The message makes it to Tracy and Ness's mother, who pray for Ness and his friends. Finally, the message arrives in the office of a middle-aged man. An old-timey phone sits on his desk. This is Ness's father. When he hears Paula's message, he goes to the window, looks out of it, and bows his head in thought. All across the earth, the people that Ness and his friends have helped stand bound in wishing for the kids' safety. Back in the past, inside Gygus's swirling vortex, this is clearly having an effect. Gygus's form has become even more chaotic. Finally, Paula looks straight into the camera. Help us! With the viewer of the show as the final person praying for the kids, Gygus begins to fold in on itself. He is defeated, but the kids might still be destroyed as Gygus begins to break down. Ness watches as Gygus' energy lashes out at Pooh's robot body. To his horror, Pooh's robot is completely destroyed as the energy hits it. The same thing happens to Jeff, then to Paula. Things get more and more chaotic. A part of Gygus reaches out for Ness. Ness passes out and everything goes dark. The children wake up back in Saturn Valley. They're back in their own bodies. Andonuts explains to them that when Gygus was defeated and their android bodies destroyed, their consciousnesses were sent hurtling forward through time and returned to their bodies. The kids breathe a huge sigh of relief. They've done it. They've defeated Gygus and saved the world. Their journey is over. This sinks in for a moment. Their journey is over. They have to say goodbye now. Pooh bows low to his friends. 
I must return to my country now. It has been an honor being your friend, Ness. Ness gives him a hug, much to Pooh's surprise, and shortly after, Paula and Jeff join in too. And then, just like that, Pooh teleports home. Jeff scratches his head. I should probably get back to school, too. Ananuts places a hand on Jeff's shoulder. Need a lift? Jeff nods. He gives one final look to his friends, and then he and his father head into one of Andonuts' flying machines and head home to Winters. This leaves just Ness and Paula. Ness looks to Paula. Can I walk you home? Ness and Paula take hands, and they depart on the walk from Saturn Valley to Threed and then back to Tucson. Sure, they could teleport, but they're in no rush, and we are treated with a sweet final sequence of all the fun they get up to on their last day together during the walk home. Ness and Paula lay in a field just south of Tucson. What do you think Pooh and Jeff are up to right about now? Ness mulls it over. I think the people of Dalam made Pooh their king. It's only natural. He did save the world, after all. I think he is a good king, and he hosts a dance party at his palace every night. As Ness says this, we see that it's true. Pooh sits on the throne, serious as ever but very kind and he does throw a dance party in which he eagerly participates. What about Jeff? Asks Ness. Paula answers. I think he got back to school and he finally told that person that he loves how he feels. And I bet he got really scared and nervous, but after it was done, he felt really happy. We see Jeff standing in his room with Tony. We can't hear what Jeff is saying, but when he's done... Tony gives Jeff a big hug. Jeff smiles. They make it back to Tucson, but it's still light out. There's so much more of the day left. Ness asks Paula if he can show her his hometown. She agrees. They walk even further, through the forest path connecting Tucson and Onet. Once back in Onet, Ness is giddy to share with Paula his favorite things. He shows Paula the burger joint he frequents. They play video games in the arcade. He even accidentally runs into the group of boys by the treehouse, introducing them all to Paula. On this day, the best day of his life so far to Ness, it feels like Paula belongs here. She would fit in so well. They go to the edge of town where a cliff overlooks the sea. There's a bench. It might even be the same bench where he met Pokey. By the bench is an abandoned house. It should have been torn down years ago, but it's been there so long that it's now considered a landmark of Onet. Ness and Paula explore the house, looking for ghosts. They play pretend, planning their future, jokingly declaring where furniture should go, what rooms they should convert the unused spaces to. At one point, Ness quips that they can be here forever. As he says that, the rays of the setting sun shine through the window. They go outside and sit on the bench and watch the sun drop below the horizon. Take me home, Ness. Finally, Ness returns Paula to her parents' house. So this is goodbye, then, Ness says with some melancholy. Paula looks back at him. I'm just a few towns over, Ness. It doesn't have to be goodbye. But something about the answer rings hollow for both of them. 
Paula returns to Ness and gives him a kiss on the cheek. Paula fiddles with the door, but finally enters her house. I'll see you around. Ness looks after her for a moment, wanting to say something else, anything. Maybe the finicky door is a sign that he should say something. But he doesn't. Paula goes inside, and he teleports away. Ness appears outside his house, where he is face-to-face with not his mom, but the mysterious photography man? Hello again. The man greets him warmly, saying, These are for you. And handing him a stack of Polaroids. Ness flips through them and realizes that these are all pictures that document Ness's adventure. And they're all good pictures? Like, they're posing and smiling? When and how did he take these? But when he looks up to thank the man, he's gone. Ness then takes a deep breath and enters his home. He gives his mom and sister a big hug. His mom has a big plate of steak waiting for him on the kitchen table. It was a really good day. Ness looks on the wall at a picture of his mom and dad when they were much younger, and it may occur to the audience at this point that Ness's parents are Ninten and Anna. Ness looks at the picture and smiles. Thanks, Dad. He goes upstairs, gets in his PJs, and lies awake in his bed, staring at stickers resembling planets and stars stuck to his ceiling. From the moment he got home, Ness seemed happy. And he was. But right now his smile drops. He is now deadly serious. He takes out one of the photographer's Polaroids. It's one of him, Jeff, Paula, and Pooh. All of them. And they're all smiling. His friends. His friends that most likely he'll never see again. Ness, half awake and teary-eyed, whispers to himself... I wish I can save the world a second time, and drifts off to sleep. We pan up to the fake stars on Ness's ceiling and transition fade into real ones in the vast depths of space. A giant, white, gloved hand floats into frame like a puppet with its head down. It slowly comes to life, And even though it doesn't have eyes, we can somehow tell that it is staring at us. Its fingers begin to stretch out and dance like overzealous spiders. And then suddenly, it counts on its fingers. One, two, three, snap. End of show. So, that's Earthbound. Short and sweet. That's Earthbound. Thank you guys so much for joining us on what we know is kind of an unusual episode for us. Yeah, if you made it all the way through, first of all, thank you and congratulations. I feel like we we should reward you with something. Yeah, I think although I think to our credit, I think we probably managed to wrap that up quicker than we were expecting. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and. If there's any executives that somehow have the Earthbound IP just, like, sitting in their laps, hire us. Really hire us. Yeah, I don't know if if Nintendo is clutching their pearls to the rights to Earthbound or if those are floating out there somewhere in Hollywood, but uh, if if a Hollywood executive is listening to this and just happens to have those rights, uh, 
We're your boys. And if this is like 20 years in the future and this is playing in a board meeting and we're like also there just sort of like grinning at this audio, just know that look at look at our faces in uh, in that in that meeting right now. We are grinning looking at you knowing that we are going to do this. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Um, anyway, thank you so much, and check back in next week for your regularly scheduled Mise on Smash. Absolutely. We'll see you then.